So I'm here with my friends, Kogan and Josh, and we're going to have a little chat about whatever we have a chat about. How's it going, guys? Good. Excellent. Just uh, consumed a whole, whole, mug of, whole mug of cacao. What'd you think of the cacao? It was good. Um, it has a, uh, has a very earthy flavor. That's, a, that's probably the best way to describe it. What'd you think? Fully agree. Yeah. Barky, earthy. How powerful. Yeah. Taste. Yeah. 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 It has a little, little kick to it. Like, uh, I wouldn't call it like a opiate effect or anything, but it, ha it definitely has a little bit of a relaxing effect that you feel afterward. Mm. Do you feel it? Do you notice it or? Uh, I noticed more of the kind of slightly fiery sort of mm. same quality to mm -hmm. it. It feels like a, thank you. Yeah. It feels like a. Mm -hmm. A big up. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that is. Yeah. But um, kind of like caffeine. Yeah. A little stronger, actually. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I guess I wanted to ask you a little bit, Josh, about, uh, because you have a history in acting and you mm -hmm. have a history in performance. And I'm curious what your, your thoughts are on the crossover between uh, acting or investigating identity uh, for stage or theater and investigating your identity uh, for its own sake. Mm. Yeah, it became really clear pretty early on in studying acting that it really is kind of an art of studying ego. And then, um, for instance, in acting, often we are looking for an objective. And the acting teacher I had in college would basically put it in a singular phrase. It's just one character getting another character to do something. And then from there, it became really clear that, oh, it's about motivation and all these things. And it seemed like, you know, desire or egoic a lot in nature. And so then when you start exploring different characters, you can see, oh, to, to master one's own ego or to master this own sense of um, self, if you will, would give a lot of insight on how to approach these characters. Because really it, it's about, um, we start kind of playing with capability. What, what are we capable of and what do we bring to the character or what would the character bring that we don't seem to have within? Um, and so being able to see an ego or a structure of ego, wants, desires, control, those kinds of things from the outside really starts to illuminate what happens on a day-to-day -day basis. And it was kind of an interesting experience of instead of having ego feel like it was something present here all the time, it was something that was being watched from a distance. And that, I think, provided quite a bit of insight to be able to see these mechanisms at play without necessarily um, falling prey to them, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it seems as if the, by that approach or by that vehicle, um, you have an opportunity to see the difference between identifying with ego tendencies and just simply noticing ego tendencies, mm -hmm. seeing their motivations as not necessarily your motivations, mm -hmm. like just enough distance to start to actually recognize those tendencies, behaviors, drives. Mm. Um, and maybe this whole process we talk about awakening and so forth um, is actually about that in one sense. It's not really about making distance or becoming a watcher because none of those things actually ever happen anyway. They don't right. really happen. Right. But this is all, all the, the cognitive aspects of, of uh, uh, identity, of desire, of aversion. They're, they're all something that can be 
observed as such at some point. There, there's something that can be recognized to be not actually defining of any entity, of any person, of any center, of any body mind. And there's huge value to that, however that's approached. I yeah, the, there was a lot of insight about um, habitual patterning and things along those lines. It was acting just really gave an opportunity to turn it inward and really start to pay attention. So in a way, it was its own form of inquiry without any formal questions. It, um, watching these things in a way, and yeah, it, it, it's an illusion that it's from a distance, but it just doesn't feel as sticky when we apply ourselves as someone who's running an experiment or someone who is playing a game versus this is who I am, which was kind of a firm knowing at the time, or, you know, I am this way. It was more along the lines of, what is it? It was just that curiosity. And so being able to engage with it in that way made it a lot less sticky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it, it really reminds me of a couple of the things that I noticed right after my own initial awakening many years ago. One of them was, I noticed that certain drives or desires or just very normal human emotions or experiences that before I had repressed without even realizing it, there was, it, it was like, I kind of wanted something, but I also really wanted to, to not want it. So I, I, there was this massive amount of ambivalence within me, especially about the things that were actually quite natural, like, you know, sex drive or attraction or different things. And I noticed after awakening suddenly, I was so surprised how enjoyable it actually is to simply express that mm -hmm. and it's not dangerous and it, it ends up, you're more authentic, you're more fluid and natural and it felt so good to just be unapologetically human. Yeah. And that shift yeah. was so, for me, it was so stark. It was so dramatic that it was like, oh my God, I could have lived my whole life and not even recognized that. So really by grace or by something beyond me and that is, I think, such an important part of all of what we talk about is something beyond the identity, mm. beyond what you take yourself to be has to come into play somehow. Mm. Otherwise yeah. you can just get stuck in your own view that not even realizing it's a view. You know? There, there seems to be an essence of resistance that just, I think we become acclimated to, or it's almost a have to that we apply ourselves with. And, it, and a lot of it has to do with social constructs and the need to conform or the need not to be rejected and all these other things. And when that particular, it seemed like a crossroad or um, maybe uh, a climax of some sort, when that particular point was seen, it was, is it worth it to pretend to be something other than you truly are? Or is it better just to be what you truly are? And even in acting itself, good acting is always comes from a place of authenticity. In fact, a good actor will be feeling what the character is feeling. And so we can sense when there's not authenticity in acting, we just get that uncanny valley feeling where there's something quite, there's something off. There, that was a major revelation when it was acting. Um, at the time, it seemed like I had to keep applying layers of character and basically bullshit along the way. And when I realized it was more about peeling off those layers and getting down to like something that was very fundamentally true, something changed and the way that the acting was received completely changed. The way um, other people saw it was like, wow, that was incredible. And I was like, but I really didn't do anything. I was just being really honest. And that was a huge revelation. Can you tell me what you mean by that? Man, I, I relate so much to what you're saying. Can you tell me what you mean by, or just unpack the, the, the phrase uncanny valley? 
Is that what you said? Yeah, Uncanny Valley. Uh, mm-hmm. Uncanny Valley, I think, I'm not sure what the traditional uh, exact definition is, but it's when we encounter something that is like human or lifelike, but there's something about it that's slightly off and we just get an intuitive sense that something's not right. So when you watch those videos of like a uh, humanoid android mm-hmm. and the way they move, even though it's very human-like, there's something slightly off about it. And it just kind of gives us a feeling of, mm, something's not quite right. Gotcha. We actually have these experiences. Um, you know, the younger generation would refer to it as cringe. And Avalon uses that word often. And it's when somebody's being inauthentic, she gets a sensation that makes her say, that's cringe. Mm. So that's intuition speaking. Like some sort of, there's a disconnect with authenticity there. And we, we just know. We just know right away. Genius. Now is cringe down here and sus is up here? Or is cringe <laughs> like beyond sus? I think sus is, sus is the pre-cringe experience. When somebody comes in and you have a prejudgment, that's probably sus. But their behavior eventually leads to the result of cringe. That's genius. We, we have to have her explain this to us yeah. on camera. Um, okay, uh, so... The last, I do want to ask you something actually different, but let me ask you one more thing first. So when we talk about um, Uncanny Valley, or we talk about that that cringe or whatever, is that in, in acting specifically, is that the sense you get when you watch somebody who maybe has good, reasonably good training as an actor, they're, they're doing the work, but there's still something about them that you just go, they're acting. That's it. You, the fact that they're acting stands out. That's whereas it. a really, really good actor, whatever that means, you don't even notice that they're acting. Yeah, it seems like that's got to be who they are, and and then you're 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 part of the story already. You're feeling what they're feeling. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, good acting is an authentic experience that is enrolling for whatever this human experience seems to be for the audience. We are pulled in immediately with an authentic experience. Mm-hmm. It's just pretty much impossible not to want to come along. And um, a good example with that of that would be you know Jim Carrey from the Ace Ventura era to when he did the movie The Majestic, if you ever saw that. Mm-hmm. The way he taps into character, it, it, it just pulls you in. And even though you're looking at this particular man's face, who you may be associating with these other characters, in the moments that he has in that film, you are absolutely enthralled and in it with him. There's really no choice. You actually have to actively resist to be in the in the moment with him. And that's, that's good acting. Mm. It also shows up in pretty much everything, you know, um, sales, things like that, we, we get a sense, we, if we can trust that intuition, it's always speaking in some way, we get a sense of something being right or something's a little off. Mm. Always trust that because uh, it seems to be an absolute necessity for authenticity for all of us. Beautiful. So Kogan, I wanted to ask you something about identity, but along a little bit of a different lines because there's such a contrast in one sense between his previous life and your life. So, um, Kogan's a, a Zen Buddhist. He's a, he's actually a monastic, a monk. And I'm curious what your experience is of I, investigating identity, the the boundaries of identity, the, the perhaps the falsity of identity, but through the lens or through the experience of very, pretty rigid practice and a pretty regimented life, but but a life of service, truly. Like one thing about being around you that's very, very obvious to me immediately in comparison to most people I come in contact with is you absolutely live a life of service and you're not doing it for ex- you're not doing it for extrinsic reasons it doesn't seem like it's just you the service for the 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 the, the point of, of what you're doing is service and that's it 
and you don't look for gratification. You, you don't even want it. You don't even care. You're just doing it because it makes sense to do. You literally live it the way you move, the way you act, the way you do whatever you do. And it's joyful and obvious, um, yep. which is wonderful. It's beautiful to see. And I, I respect it. And, you know, I've said this to you, but that, that life of regiment of, um, you know, really the Zen tradition, it, it can be described as austere in many ways and so forth. How did that uh, help you or how did that play into a, a deep investigation into the nature of identity itself? Mm. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting dynamic because on one hand, you know, the, the kind of entry gate to the whole thing is you shave your head, right? You put the uniform. So in a way, first step is let go of whatever you identify with, right? So, so at first, you everybody is you know, eating from the same bowls in the same way, wearing the same clothing, having the same haircut, doing exactly the same thing every single day. And in this way, you kind of first, first you're putting down whatever your preferences and tendencies are. So kind of the, the rigid structure, in a way, it's kind of, you know, giving you this opportunity to actually put down likes and dislikes and kind of be in this, you know, equanimity and kind of acceptance and, and just following it. However, of course, it, you know, you can identify with that too, right? So, so unless you actually have this actual curiosity, like it can be trapped in itself. So, so it kind of, in, in the end of the day, and my teacher used to al always say about whether it was discipline or something else, he was saying, because he trained in a like extremely kind of strict and harsh monastery that had a lot of discipline. And he, and he said... I saw that when my teacher passed away, that this, everybody was kind of seemed to be just reverted back to their own, you know, likes and dislikes. And then the discipline collapsed. And he said, that's why I feel like it has to come from within. So, and in the same way, I feel inquiry, unless it's an authentic investigation of what we are, no system will give you that. It, it can support you. It, it can hold a container where, you know, you, you have time like, you know, for example, um, you know, I had months in a monastery that I never looked up, right? Because there's, you know, one-pointed approach when you are kind of uh, just unifying everything into this one single point of Mu. Um, one of the kind of techniques you can use is you never look up. Your, your eyes are always naturally cast down as they are during meditation, right? So, of course, there is, there is you know, this opportunity in the monastery that you can actually have, you know, a little exchange with someone while not looking at them at all. And because you're constantly unifying mind in this one pointed way, and everybody understands it because that's the, you know, there's the nature of the gathering. So everybody knows what you are doing. And maybe with your boss, it wouldn't fly. But at the same time, unless you're truly coming from this place of curiosity and and wanting to know for yourself not just following the instruction that you were given mm. then uh, I, ha I have definitely seen people spending four years in a monastery and, and yet not kind of going beyond their identities um, just kind of f finding a comfortable place within the structure and kind of quietness of it all mm. and yet you know not making the leap so mm. that's, that's kind of interesting exploration for me too, kind of looking how the pra pragmatic dharma so-called which has stripped down from form and and kind of basis mostly on the 
natural curiosity of each person mm. uh, versus the traditional dharma, which has forms, scriptures, and and all of that. So it's 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 very you know it's mm. very interesting sort of intersection. There, yeah. There's a parallel. Um, yeah, so there's a parallel in acting with that. Um, there's two different approaches. There's uh, what we would call external to internal, and what that often looks like is give the character or give the actor a costume, give them some props, and have them start to feel physically what it's like to be the character, and maybe it'll sink in. And then there's internal to external, where you start doing that internal work. Along with what you said, I think that fits so perfectly is it's really both. It's it's kind of like you have that external structure, as you're mentioning, but it really still has to be something that begins deep, deep in there. I, I think it's beautifully said. I just want to point out something for anybody watching this. Um, you may have noticed, and I tend to set things up a certain way, sometimes even if I don't notice, but you know, I'm talking to two people who have externally extremely different lives and both... Um, realized very deep insights and that will be revealed in the documentary we're making but uh but extremely different lives i mean josh is the living jester josh is the he's literally the arch the the trickster archetype the clown archetype like that's who he is he's hilarious uh he's he's fun he's robust he's energetic uh kogan is uh i wouldn't call him necessarily serious but he you know he's he's collected his energy is not wasted He's, he, all he does is serve. That's what he does all day long. And he does it with joy and, and he's just enjoyable to be around. And he's also very personable. He's, he's got a good sense of humor and so forth. Um, but he lives literally a monastic lifestyle that most of us are just completely un, uh, unaccustomed to and not aware of and so forth. And yet somehow both of these guys realize something very, very profound that everything I do is about. Everything I do is about this. Every every video on the channel, that's what this is about. We're talking about right now. And I'm looking for where these things come into con contact, right? The point is, if you're asking, if you're telling yourself, I can't do this because I live a householder lifestyle, or I can't do this because I'm not a monastic, well, here you go. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to point out or maybe boil down what it is that these people do to really investigate identity, to really get to the root of the issue. If you're a Zen Buddhist, you might call it the problem of birth and death. If you're a householder, you might say, why am I suffering? Why am I not satisfied? All the stuff I have, all the things I've completed, and I'm still not satisfied. It doesn't matter what you call it. What matters is it's authentic to you, and it's your deepest question. It's your deepest yearning, your deepest prompting. Um, and and I want to also point out what Kogan said was so beautiful about the one-pointed, where you could spend in a monastery situation months just literally looking down and forward. And it, it is very natural. I've done Zen Buddhism myself, never was a monastic, but I've done Sashins, which are week-long retreats. And it is very easy when you're sitting in Zazen and looking, you know, two to four feet in front of you with your sleepy Buddha eyes as you do Zazen to get up and just keep doing that. It's, it's, it's very natural to just sort of notice the sort of hazy visual experience in front of you without having to look up and engage objects and people and so forth. And it's really conducive to meditation. But... That's a that's a mechanical thing we're doing. That's a that's a an opportunity or a structured practice that allows us to to look beyond and or or maybe deeper within. And what he described and the flavor of what he described is exactly what it felt like for me when I read the three pillars of Zen and I read those exchanges with the Zen teacher and the students and I figured out how to engage that one thing, that one place that had always been here my first 24 years of life while I suffered, while I 
wrestled with my thoughts, while I tried to figure things out, all of it, all the questioning, all that stuff, there was something there the whole time right in front of my face and I had just kept overlooking it with thoughts and dodging it and missing it. And all of a sudden, boom, I knew what it was. The moment I knew what it was, I didn't take my eyes off it. I didn't take my heart off of it. At some point I stayed with that. And, that's, and what he described is exactly what it felt like. I was going to work, I was talking to people, I was talking to you know, a, a ex-girlfriend at the time, like different people, different situations. And somehow there was something I was carrying through the day. And it was just that burning, burning question. Call it a burning desire to come into contact with your true nature. Doesn't matter what you call it, but you have it. You absolutely have it. And you've been carrying it your whole life. And if you're watching this, part of you wants to address that. And that can be addressed in a monastic setting. It can be addressed in retreats. And those are very good places and times to do it. Um, but it doesn't mean that that's not accessible right now. Or it's not accessible when you're watching television or flipping through your phone, talking to your lover. It's always right in front of your face. And that is absolutely the, tr the truth. It's the case. And that's, that's why I wanted to kind of show this contrast. Um, and that one-pointed approach may or may not feel like exactly where you want to go or how you want to go. Some people feel more like a surrender, more like literally just letting go. But I promise you that the one-pointed approach we're talking about and that just absolute surrender, uh, uh, just com complete resignation from trying to be the manager of your own life and failing at it, those actually meet. Mm -hmm. And they meet in this beautiful place. The same place. They are the same place, literally the same place. And that's how it felt for me. It was like, uh, you know, just like I wrote in the book, intention and surrender, they, they meet at some point. The one-pointed approach and absolute just letting go into all of this, uh, they, they do meet and they end up being the same thing. Yeah. There's, um, there's an expansion of attention that that attention is always present. It's like having your finger on a pulse. That's, it's like a heartbeat that's always present. And for some of you, maybe hearing that it can be felt might be useful because it, it, it's very much like a, something felt, um, maybe not as visceral as an actual sensation all the time. But it's, it's, it's so ever-present that it's always there, right in front of the face. You're tasting it right now. You can hear it in this moment. I know that sounds kind of tricky. Yeah, it's exactly that. And at first, you might, you might have a taste of that. You may come into contact with that and have an experiential insight about it for a short time. Uh, you may, and then the mind will interpret this often as something. So it'll say, I experienced universal love. And you'll carry that story with you afterward. But... The story is just another distraction. The, the, that which you experienced is not, it's not universal. It's not singular. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not anything. It's, it's, you know, in a sense, the middle way, but it's always available. And the, the impulse becomes, in one sense, more and more subtle. But as it becomes more and more subtle, it also becomes, um, that, that, that opens up more portals for it to just be available and obvious in everything, in the senses and the sound and the colors and the apparent forms, the apparent dimensionality of all of this. And a very paradoxical thing happens where instead of like a, a sort of expansion or a, a, like a vast unity, it's like that vastness and that unifying experience is radically intimate in every single uh, quanta of experience. Every sound, the sound above us here, the, the sound of the voice, the feeling of the body, it's, it's exquisite and it's deeply uh, intimate, but it also has that one flavor of emptiness, that one flavor of no thingness. It's not nothing, it's not 
uh, it's not an absence of anything, but it's it's not a it's not a thing that the mind makes an object out of. That's what the no thingness is. That's just my experience. I don't know if you have something to say about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I was actually going planning to go back to this this point you made about the the you know different circumstances. What kind of came to me is you know if if you have the idea that you you will you need to go to a monastery to to kind of get it or something, right? This this is precisely an excuse that minds create in order not to look right now. And even if you would go to monastery, your mind would would find another yeah. excuse that would be <laughs> it is this kind of you know one of my my friends uh, teachers he had this kind of always saying about the you know ego coming to the, you know to the bar which which has a kind of sign free beer tomorrow mm. right and it's, and it's looking oh it's tomorrow okay i'll come back tomorrow and it's coming back but the sign still says free beer tomorrow right so, so the promise is never fulfilled mm. so unless you look right now into this mm. this you know the nature of this timeless empty existence right now or neither existence nor no nor existence just what is then you know this is the only doorway uh, mm. this this is the only you know ever present never lost contact point that is mm. always right here and never in any other place than mm. just here the soft yeah it takes every what you said is so true it takes that's, everything away from you that's per that's the perfect way to put it. it takes every future away from you every promise away from you and that's great that's what that's what you really want that's freedom that's freedom um mm -hmm. or liberation however you want to put it it's here and only here that i yeah I, there's really nothing to add and that was just the perfect way to put it yeah uh, um the, the the promise of later when the promise you know like like I kind of it kind of it can be a bit of a um, red herring to personify ego too much as this thing but but if if the ego has a trick its trick is the future its trick is later when its trick is I feel something here and then the mind makes a story about oh but later I can feel that well no it's right here or you feel something uncomfortable let's say what we, we could call uncomfortable. The mind will say, oh, I can't wait until later when I learn how to solve that. That's it. it it's just it's just kind of a, a little bit like, hey, hey, look over here, look over here. You know, it's like trying to catch attention a little bit. Um, just stop that. You know, just cut off that mind road long enough, however you have to, through frustration, through surrender, through meditation, through inquiry, but really just get, get the message to yourself from yourself that the answer is right here. And it's not a set of words you're going to tell somebody. It, you're not going to go to somebody and announce yourself as the one who woke up. It's not about any of those things. It's not about getting validation. It's better than all that in, in one sense. It's not about completing the, the, the job of life to, to satisfy your parents. It's not about you know finding any specific state. All of those things are just little enticements to say later when. Yeah. Um, there's something here that just does not have to do with time and it's ringing and no one can save you. There's no one out there that can save you. This is not about being saved at all. It's just about developing a relationship with this as it is. That's it. And you're more than capable of doing that completely. It's, it's as if you were made for this truly. And to just be engaged in this. Um, all the way, 
means that there's no need to, to, I mean, validation at this point, it's so funny. Compliments feel so hollow and empty now when before it was like all I wanted, please prove to me how good I am. Please, please prove to me how valuable I am for you. And now it's, I hear compliments and it's like, it sounds a little bit like a joke. It's kind of funny. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. It, I mean, there's nothing to strive or struggle for. There's just this, nothing else. Yeah. I think the more that it's examined, you will find there's nothing else out there. It's just this. It's always been just this. Mm-hmm. The rest is just thoughts to occupy that sense of past projecting itself to future. And that's it. So without a thought, now what is it? Yeah. And he just took your teacher away, right? So a lot of times we can have this idea with the, with the really charismatic teacher or guru or something. And I have no problem with any of that. You know, it's facilitation can be very helpful, having a good guide. But you better really watch that you don't give over your belief, your, your belief that that person is going to do this for you because they can't. What they can do is they can give you flavors of it here and there, but only in the moment. You know, it's just to kind of attune you to yourself, right? But there are situations and groups and things where, you know, a very charismatic teacher, uh, what's happening there is actually the, 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 the sort of group or the group dynamic is sort of saying, you know, a later win, right? Later when that teacher finally gives it to me, or, you know, I get enough of their enlightenment or something. And it's just a game we play with ourselves in our mind. And it really does come back to validation, strangely enough, with many things that we get entangled in. Um, but the, the validation thing I wanted to address as well, which is interesting, is what I found is we think we want validation. Like we really think we want to be seen, heard, recognized, appreciated. And behaviorally, it really feels like that to us because we're just in the habit of it, maybe. But it, but what I found is if you look really deeply, for me, I, what I realized was I didn't, it's not that I wanted validation. It's not that I wanted love or a perfect partner or romance or, you know, all the different things. I wanted to be free of the fear of not having it. And I did not see that. It was actually an avoidance. It was an aversion. Mm. Aversion was driving the bus and I didn't see it. So desire and aversion are very interrelated. Mm. And when we get hypnotize ourselves with desire, with like, oh, a later win, I get that thing and the longing, we're really lying to ourselves. We're kind of splitting ourselves because we're not seeing behind that view and behind that view is fear. Behind that view is fear and, and an aversion to perhaps the opposite of that. And now we're creating a world of opposites where some things are horrendous and some things are really enjoyable and yet if we really look at what's actually happening we're often of we're often afraid of feeling deep enjoyment pleasure and we're afraid of feeling fear we're just afraid of everything right so underneath a lot of this is is just a bunch of fear and if you can just stop all of that and go directly into the fear that's it and experience it um let the body process it let it just be experienced let it be what it is for long enough uh, a lot of this identity stuff will start to crumble. Get closer to the sensation than the fear itself. The fear is just an umbrella. It's an assumption. Get into the individual aspects of sensation, and it kind of takes you almost like a, on its own journey, remarkably. And there, it becomes difficult to orient a self in that experience pretty quickly if you allow that full immersion and that full engagement. Um, a really wonderful compass, we, we spoke about this at one point, spinning compass is a sense of gratitude. It's not an imposed sense, but allowing yourself at any point in your day to just see if you can become grateful for even the fact that these appendages exist, that there's a really powerful presence in gratitude itself. Just 
being glad to be here. It, it, it can guide you pretty quickly as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think because it's, it's this kind of paradox that so many of us come to the spiritual path thinking that this is a path, right? Which means I'll get somewhere else finally and I'll be someone else. And, and the whole <laughs> joke is that the that this no path is simply taking the ability away from you from being anywhere else, but being exactly here and being exactly that. And, and just completely giving yourself to that is the only no path that there is. There's, there's nothing in front of you or behind you. It's just beneath the feet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The end of the end of beginnings and the end of ends end of futures and the end of pasts. And that's not a big deal, actually. It's just this. It's very simple. But we we have a, a just a kind of a strong tendency to try to reorient to something later on and imagine and but it's not necessary. We do just fine um when we don't try to make anything up. Yeah, my Zen teacher used to say, you know, this thing, just sit and don't make anything. Mm. Pretty good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it renders you speechless pretty quickly as well. And it leads you to this wonderful engagement with the unknown. Can you, can you talk about the famous exchange with Bodhidharma about the unknown? About I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, that's probably I should have known it by now. Um, but, but, you know, it, it won't be exactly. But he, he came to visit Emperor Wu. Uh, you know, he arrived from India to transmit the kind of Dharma to, 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 to China. And he stood in front of the emperor. And um, the emperor asked, what is the most important teaching of Buddhism? And he said, empty space, nothing holy. And the emperor was kind of really <laughs> not glad to hear it. I mean, I think the previous question even was, I have built 10,000 of temples and then, you know, supported translation of many texts. So did I get a lot of merit? And, and Bodhiram said, no merit. <laughs> so then he asked, so what's the, what is the essence of Buddhism? And he said, just empty space, no holiness. And he said, so, so who are you? He said, don't know. <laughs> and that was the end of conversation between the emperor and Bodhidharma. Oh. <laughs> Is it a problem to not know who or what you are? In one sense, it solves every problem. Because if we think about problems, they're always, everything points back to us. Even, even really, not to minimize the suffering of the world and problems in the world, but the, the fact that we get entangled in them in our mind, the fact that we get distracted with 
external things, trying to solve problems that we're not even in physical contact with and then ignoring what's being felt right now. Um, that's actually not what compassion is. Compassion is to see deeply enough into our own psyche, our own heart, our own experience, and to see what delusion actually is, what self-deception actually is. And then all of a sudden we do understand these horrible things that happen in the world. And we understand them with a very different view. This is my experience, actually. I should just say me. I, I understand things with a very different view. And it becomes very, very clear that the one thing I can do um, is address any remaining ignorance here. And the depth of that has effects. And you may never know those effects, really. You certainly can't predict or plan them. But then I look out and I see leaders and so forth that may make decisions that are going to result in a lot of violence and so forth. And I understand. I understand where they're coming from. Justice is still called for in the world, of course. And if you're involved in those situations, then you know you do what you have to do and what you should do. But um, what I see is that the mechanism of self-deception, the mechanism of, of um, seeing the world in a very divided way, the, the self and other, the tribalism that results from all of that is really illusory. But to the degree that anyone is still hypnotized by it, it's a matter of conditions before they are in a situation or put in a situation where they could perpetrate violence. And in some situations, in some groups, that can be quite destructive. Um, so I, I think understand, just understanding those mechanisms, those tendencies and seeing the depths of, uh, human, um, selfishness, uh, human delusion and how it functions in human consciousness and making a study of it in ourselves and just being willing to go through the bottom of the identity structure here is about the best thing you can do for anyone or anything you come into contact with in this lifetime. And with that comes a wisdom that I actually can't control what happens in the world. Mm. I can't control it. It can be heartbreaking, and it is at times for sure. Um, mm. But to but to get obsessed with it, to get angry about it, and talk to other people about it and different things sometimes, it actually stirs a little bit a different kind of violence sometimes, or it spreads it a little bit, or you know, um, it's a little tricky one to talk about. But but again, for me, the the deeper this has gone the more I feel deeply settled that the one thing I can do to address the massive suffering I've seen in the world and breaks my heart um, is to just keep looking deeper here. There's no doubt about that. And, um, you know, an old way of human bonding or tribalism is really associated with sharing common suffering, common pain. What if you were to give it uh, a shot in another way to share compassion and really does have to deepen here in order to do so. What would it be like to connect with other human beings or in this world in a way that was oriented with compassion instead of sharing a common form of suffering? little thought experiment for you. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And there are um, there are non-obvious effects of this, is, is what I could say. 
some very surprising um, results have come of of this. Uh, some very serendipitous encounters. Uh, people tell me things that sound pretty um, I don't know. Synchronicity is the word, I guess. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, all I can say is the deeper you go, the more uh, you realize things that are, are really beyond the human dimension and a different order of compassion and a different order of love comes online. Yeah. And, and, and it also seems that the kind of liberated presence is such a potent agent. It kind of reminds me of those, I don't know, maybe it's totally fake thing on the, on the, uh, ads, but, but you know, when they show that there, there's a kind of, uh, fat or something and, and there's just one drop of, of, of soap, right. Or, or, or same, like the, the kind of bleach that, that goes into like a big pool of water, yet kind of all of it's purified. Suddenly like everything is just, mm. there, there's this movement because there's this deep resonance because this actuality, right. Mm. So, so, so naturally there, there's this recognition of there is this possibility there because that is truer mm. than the kind of all fabricated ways that we talk to ourselves about what's happening and so forth. So, mm. so this kind of liberated presence is such a potent agent that even if on this sort of relative level, we can feel kind of hopeless looking at the, the amount of human suffering out there. Yet, you know, it's, it's, it's one system, right? It's not like mm. we're, you know, we are here and things are there, right? It's, mm. it's, it's just exactly whatever right now we are doing here you know in in this basement in a suburban denver right it's it's it has impact everywhere it reverberates from in, in ten thousand direct in in ten directions right like in in ten thousand forms so so to speak like in all ways this one single moment of interaction mm. kind of affects everything else and, and it's a potent agent so it's kind of good to remember that uh, when kind of sometimes feeling hopeless and mm. and, and kind of uh, not not knowing how 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 are we contributing, but but yet, you know the 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 re removing whatever is extra and kind of just going to the to the real is, you know, it's a reverberating through 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 all of existence. Powerful mm. and true. One one instant of touching into empty nature has so much potency and it's it's impossible to talk about this but you see the effects um often in retrospect uh the 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 world of the mind is a busy world it's a it's a world with a lot of promises but it's also a world of just a lot of static and it's quite surface to get down into instinct deep deep profound instinct that goes beyond the limitations of this body mind in this lifetime and the apparent separation between body minds objects world universe um, you do come into this, into contact with that, which knows no boundary whatsoever. And it has an effect. Correct. We might run out of time, but we can keep, when that started flashing, I thought maybe the battery's almost dead. One of the, the most, um, selfless things we can do. Well, seemingly the most selfless thing we can do is to let go of the self. That's a really powerful beginning. Yep. 
Okay. Well, thanks for the conversation, gentlemen. It was awesome. Yeah, appreciate it. Very cool. Yeah, thanks for watching. <laughs> Are we live? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. That was fun, yeah. I don't even actually really know what was said. I don't know either. Felt good. Felt great. Yeah. There was a lot.